Okay, let's get going with Bible study. everybody to the deep dive Bible study on Tim Hedge Life on YouTube. If you're here for the first time every Wednesday night at 730, we do Bible study for about an hour and we are going through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. This is part 10, but I'm going to put a subtitle under Torah part 10, and that is Torah part 10 subtitle slavery in the Bible part one. So today I think this is going to be a very good benefit to your life on how do we address the very challenging topic of slavery in the Bible. It's there. God talks about how the Israelites are supposed to take slaves, and we modern people will use this conversation in the Holy Scriptures as an excuse to devalue other texts and to question the inerrancy and the reliability and even the Holy Spirit inspiration of Holy Scripture. So today is incredibly important. Let's get to it in our Bible study on Torah, the law of life. The Deep Dive, Season 7 presents Torah, the law of life. Yeah, Torah, the law of life. How, how can we trust the Bible when it seems to be such an antiquated text, right? This is the skeptic's complaint. We did this with our first discussion about difficult texts in the Torah a couple of episodes ago with regards to the captive slave woman. And today we're going to do it again because the Bible does talk about slavery. And some people could say this is proof that the Bible can't be trusted. Or moreover, this is proof that we need to adapt the rest of the Bible to our time. So, you know, the Bible's outdated here. Slavery is there. It teaches Israel to take slaves and also to sell their children and their daughters as slaves. And what's all that about? So maybe since the Bible is outdated in regards to slavery, maybe it's outdated in regards to, oh, I don't know, human sexuality, drug use, other things that we want to do, which the Bible kind of prohibits. And we don't like those uncomfortable passages. So let's find ways in the biblical text to, you know, redefine morality according to the Bible. And there's questions to be asked about this that are important. Should we ignore the Bible's teaching on slavery? And of course, you're going to hear me say no, but I want you to stay with me for this content so that I can unpack the why behind that answer. And then we have to ask this question, how we have to answer the question of how, how does, how does the Bible allow for slavery with, with this question, <clears throat> And I am, I am under the weather, so please forgive me for clearing my throat on a regular basis. I did not want to push back this content. I had to get it out. So anyway, pushing through. So we have to answer the question, how does the Bible allow for slavery with a kickback question? And here it is. Are we that much better than the ancient world? Are we that much better than the ancient world? Consider the fact that we are living in a time in which there are more slaves in captivity right now than at any other time in human history. This is data from the Exodus Road uh, Sex Trafficking Freedom Project. 
There are more people trapped in slavery today than at any other point in human history. 43% of human trafficking victims are enforced labor. 13% of human trafficking victims are being exploited in the commercial sex trade. And 44% of human trafficking victims are in forced marriage. One of the organizations that we support here on this channel is Project Rescue. Here's data from their homepage. Over 4 million people are being held in bondage globally right now, trapped in the horrors of sexual exploitation. There on a mission to change that. When you support this channel, we are supporting them. 10% of all that comes in goes to them because we have to stop. We have to stop slave trading. We have to stop. We have to stop sex slavery. Yes. And here's the question that I'm going to answer tonight at the end of our conversation. I love to give you the upfront load. Here's what I plan on delivering to you. Okay. What the Bible teaches about slavery in the Torah. And then I want to answer this question. Why didn't the Bible eliminate it? Because it wouldn't have been so much easier, especially for us modern people who love the Bible, who love God's word, who want to defend God's word. Wouldn't it have been much easier if God had just said, oh, by the way, don't have slaves. Because in 3,000 years, slavery is going to come to an end in the modern American culture. And they're going to think, why did the Bible allow for slavery? <laughs> and that would have been my preference. I would have loved if God just said, you know what? Thus says the Lord, no slavery. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that for a reason. But you're going to have to wait until the end of the content to get to that answer. So we've got to understand, number one, we are no better than our forebearers in this regard because there are more slaves today than at any time in human history. And to anyone who is out there saying, boy, you know, the Bible, how dare it allow for slavery? My question to them, the skeptics, the agnostics, the atheists is simply this. What are you doing right now, since you know that slavery is so bad, to end sex trafficking, to end sex slavery, to end the enslavement of peoples around the world? What are you contributing? What are you building? What are you fighting for if you agree that slavery shouldn't be allowed? That would be my kind of tongue-in-cheek answer to somebody like that, as we would probably go back and forth on a debate on the val validity of the Bible and scriptures. But here's another point, a philosophical point that C.S. Lewis made in the last century. Consider the idea of chronological snobbery. Now you say, what on earth is chronological snobbery? Here's what C.S. Lewis meant for that. By the way, C.S. Lewis, one of the most profound thinkers of the last century. And he was an atheist and he came to Christ reluctantly, uh, author of Mere Christianity. Basically, he, chrono chronological snobbery is this. The, the, the idea that your thinking, your values and your knowledge in your era are superior to those of another era simply because they are more recent. So you living now in the time in which you live are blessed. You are blessed with the history behind you that has brought you to the understanding that you have today. You are blessed with the literacy rates that are at an all time high. You are, let, you are blessed with the information age. You can get information anywhere through your phone. You can read almost any book right now. You can read history and literature in the past in ways to inform your mind, to shape your mind that previous generations couldn't. And be wary of the idea that you now are better than them simply because you are the beneficiary of what they contributed to the world. Just because you were born and bequeathed the information that previous generations developed does not necessarily make you the morally superior person. Do you, does that make sense? And by the way, this works both ways um, in regards to what came before us, as well as what will come after us, because here's what you don't know about the, the future. And I don't know. And no one knows. Okay. The future has yet to write moral codes. See, so every generation is in the struggle with what is morally appropriate. Every generation is right now in our generation. We're, we're in a big kind of cultural struggle with, well, what do we do with human sexuality? And what do we do with gender? And, and those questions are being, you know, 
asked and they are being debated in the cultural sphere right now. But those questions are just a, 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 a couple of generations away from being answered, in my opinion. We're also having a conversation about where does human life begin in the womb, at conception? Where does, where does a human being have viability and laws and protections and rights? Those are the abortions about, those are the abortion questions, right? We're, we're also having debates about how do we handle our world and the climate. And these are political conversations that the Bible speaks to, that Christians should have, that should, they should have entered into discussion with. But here's what we don't know. No one knows what the future is going to say about our generation. In fact, there's a good chance, okay, this is part of the chronological snobbery idea. There's a good chance that future generations are going to look back on this generation and say, I cannot believe that they allowed for late-term abortion. I cannot believe that they allowed for any abortion. There is a very, very good chance that that's where we're going to resolve in the future. Now, you are welcome to disagree with that if you're a skeptic and you're not a Christian and you're just tuning into the channel to find out what the Bible says about slavery. And welcome to the content. I'm so glad that you're here. But what we are constantly involved in as human beings is asking the question, what is beneficial for human flourishing? And by the way, that is the point of the Bible. God wants it to go well with us. He wants us to prosper. He wants us to rule and subdue the earth. He wants us to live with dignity, respect, honor for him and for his creation and for each other. And the scriptures seek to lead us toward a more uh, just, civil, and ordered society. So the question tonight is, what does the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, say about slaves? Now, we also have to acknowledge something else. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, brings implicit bias into the text. As soon as you examine scripture, you are already a biased observer or examiner of scripture because your story is shaping your is has shaped your approach to the Bible, your history, your family history, your religious history, your experience with other Christians, other people who believe the Bible, good or bad, they have all borne into your heart a bias toward holy scripture, whether you believe it or not. And so I'm asking you to do something that is almost impossible, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Can you acknowledge, at least acknowledge, that you have some implicit bias with regarding the Bible? And I am talking to the skeptic a little bit more tonight than I am to the devoted disciple of Jesus, although I am fully aware that most of my audience is a fully devoted follower of Jesus. You're here for Bible study. But I do want to talk to the skeptics, because I think that the, t the subject matter, the title of the video is going to attract you to click on the video. So you have to acknowledge, at least acknowledge, you don't have to eliminate it. It's almost impossible to eliminate your implicit bias, but you have to acknowledge that you have it. Your history, your story, your narrative, your family, your biology, your predilections, your desires, and where you are with God all speak to and affect your implicit bias when it comes to approaching the biblical text. And that brings me to this graphic, which I wanted to put here up on the screen for you, is that when it comes to slavery in the ancient world, the scriptures are not teaching us, the they are not answering the questions that we are asking. So let me put this graphic up. Slavery in Torah, God is speaking, and you'll notice that the arrow is pointing. This is what God is speaking to us about slavery. But here's what we're doing when we come to the text. And this is the implicit bias that I'm talking about. When we talk about slavery, we're coming from our perspective, our modern view, particularly in the cultural West, where we have eliminated slavery for well, close to 200 years now, 160 years. And it's a different world that we are asking questions of and from that 
the Bible is answering from. See, we are kind of missing each other on the highway of conversation. There's a cultural gap here between what the Bible is speaking about slavery and what we are asking about slavery. And so that has to be acknowledged because without acknowledging those fundamental foundational uh, characteristics of this conversation, we're just going to talk past each other and we're not going to have a reasoned discussion. So my hope and my prayer for today and this video is that you will walk away from this study saying, okay, at least I understand what a Christian does with the difficult texts of the Bible when it comes to slavery. And one more qualifier before we get into it, and that is simply this, this is in no way an exhaustive examination of slavery in the Bible. I plan to have, I think we're going to have probably three or possibly two at the, at the minimum, more discussions about slavery in the Torah. This is just part one, and they will be, I think uh, the next episode of this Bible study will be part two, and then we're going to skip it. We're going to come back to it anyway. There's a lot to say about it. In no way am I trying to do an exhaustive study, but I hope through the sub- you know, section of this study, we will provide with provide plenty of content for you to examine Holy Scripture in regards to slavery in the ancient world. Now, with that in mind, let's do this, right? Let's discuss slavery in the ancient world. I want to give you a couple of quotes, slavery uh, quotes from historical figures on slavery, slavery in their own words. And these are historically noble figures that modern Western people would probably admonish and regard as civilized and, you know, forward thinking, cultural shaping people such as Aristotle, who, who said this about slavery. He called a doulos or a slave an animated tool, just as a tool is a soulless slave. That is what Aristotle said about slaves. Cicero, more recently, 106 to 43 BC, slaves are our tools for life but they lack their own. That is the meaning of the ancient saying that slaves are living tools and tools lifeless slaves. Or Plato, who a lot of Western people go to college and study Plato and consider him a hero of modern thought. And here's what he said about slaves. He said, to be sure, my friend, a man should act toward his slaves as he does toward his animals. He should set no one of them free. This is the ancients in their own words. So if you're going to first question the validity of the entire text of the Bible because of what it says about slaves, then you have to do and apply that same standard to Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and other. That's just a fraction of ancient notable figures and how they viewed slaves, human beings, who today modern Western people cannot imagine being enslaved. That's how the ancients viewed them. So be fair, skeptics, that the way you measure the scriptures, you're going to measure ancient writers as well. You say, I already do that. Fine. Let's go a little bit further. There is um, some archaeological evidence about how slaves were treated in the ancient world. I'm going to show you this. This is a slave tag from the Roman Empire. This was discovered, I think, about uh, 30 years ago. It's a metal tag that slaves were required to wear. This is dated in the fourth century after Christ, so about 400 or 300 A.D., and it is, it is inscribed with a demand to return the slave to his master's estate in Rome. In fact, what it literally says in, the, in Latin is, hold me lest I flee and return me to my master Viventius on the estate of Callistus. Basically, it's a dog tag, like you put dog tags on your dogs, right? This is a slave tag 
That was common in the Roman world. Scholars estimate that about 10% of the, of the Roman world's population was, were slaves. Um, Romans did not enslave based on color. That was a very modern invention in terms of the slave world. In fact, it was pretty much what American Britain did. Britain identified Africans as slaves. And before that, slaves were white people, slaves were brown people, slaves were black people, or any mixture of the sort. Romans basically just enslaved whoever they conquered. You became a slave in Rome by having your nation conquered by the Roman army. And the Roman army was very good at conquest. And so they would enslave all colors of skin and all types of people. But they also prohibited the release of slaves extreme in extreme ways though the ways that the romans allowed for slavery you had to purchase your slavery and even to do that you had to work as a slave for years or you had to have some special skill or some special abilities and it was almost impossible to get out of slavery in the ancient world context let me give you a writer from ad 64 in the ancient world of rome his name is seneca he was a very notable philosopher in rome and here's what he says about the conditions of slaves in the roman empire he says when we recline at a banquet one slave mops up the disgorged food another crouches beneath the table and gathers up the leftovers of the tipsy guests another carves the priceless game birds hapless fellow to live only for the purpose of cutting fat kaplan correctly another who serves the wine must dress like a woman and wrestle with his advancing years he cannot get away from his boyhood he is dragged back to it and though he has he has already acquired a soldier's figure he is kept beardless by having his hair smoothed away or plucked out by the roots and he must remain awake throughout the night dividing his time between his master's drunkenness and his lust in the chamber he must be a man at the feast a boy so you see the degradation of slaves in the ancient world. And this is what you would call the more modern ancient world, AD 64. This is after Christ has come and risen from the grave. This is the ancient Roman empire. And it's not good. They are demanding old men to have their beards plucked out and act as women and then even satisfy the lusts of their slave owners in the bedroom and then act as a boy. You see the pedophilia here. You see the degradation of the human uh, dignity, the worth of the slave uh, in the heart of the uh, person. You, you see all of these things and it makes for a very inconvenient truth with regards to slavery in the ancient world. Kind of interesting to see that perspective. So when it comes to the Bible and slavery, can we do this? Read it from within the context to which it was written. Okay, so the latest New Testament text is written, I think, around AD 90. So you're in you're within 30 years of Seneca's view of slaves in the ancient world. Now, we're going to even go further back because we're talking about Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which were written in 1500 B.C., or thereabouts, the Bronze Age, basically, you have a profoundly different view of slavery in the first five books of the Bible than you had in almost anywhere else. No, no, not almost in anywhere else in the ancient world. So with that in mind, let's get to tonight's text, slavery in Torah, Exodus 21, one to six, and we're going to stop at verse six and we're going to go past verse six in our next discussion on slavery in the Bible uh, in a future episode. God says, now these are the rules that you are to set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. Okay, there's a lot to that text and we're not even gonna cover everything in that text because I know some of you are right now, you're saying, holy smokes, did it just talk about the fact that if the master gives him a wife and children and then the wife and children are, are now the master's when the guy gets released. And there's a very simple explanation about that, but we're gonna maybe table that I might get to it, but we might table that for another another time. Let's take a look at the word slave from this text. Number one is ebed in Hebrew or chebed in Hebrew. It can mean worker, it can mean employee, it can mean servant or slave. So when we're talking about the terminology of slave in the Hebrew scriptures regarding Torah, we could be talking about almost anybody, including somebody who is paid to work for another person. And then we have to back up in the biblical text and understand that slavery was always assumed to be a reality in the ancient world. And there's no getting around that. For as long as human beings have been around, Slaves have been around. In fact, the word slave comes from the Slavic term for Slavic people who were taken as slaves, and they were white people. That's another inconvenient truth to the modern scholars, but it is a true fact that the very English word slave comes from that, uh, that reality. White people, Slavic people were enslaved to other people. Now, let's back up in the Torah. Let's talk about the narrative, because narrative in the Torah is part of the pedagogy of God in the Hebrew Bible. God speaks through narrative. So if you back all the way up to Abraham, Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees, an oppressive, godless, vicious people. He is called to Canaan to possess a promised land. And this is all the way back in Genesis chapter 17. And here's what God prescribes for Abraham in his household. He says, he who is eight days, oh wait, this is Genesis 17 verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Now look at this. Verse 13, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my covenant, so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Hit the brakes right now. And just notice something. And by the way, verse 26 and 27 of the same chapter tell us that Abraham did just that. He circumcised Ishmael and he circumcised all the men in his house, both those who were born in it and those who he bought from a foreigner, which would be slaves. They were all circumcised. The circumcision was the sign of the covenant that God had made an agreement with Abraham's family that he would bless him, that he would give him the land as an inheritance and that his and the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. Circumcision, that sign that they are Israelites. They are sons of Abraham. Anyone in Abram's house or Abraham's house would have had the sign of covenant circumcision, the circumcision sign of covenant, guaranteeing them possession of the rights and privileges of God's chosen people, including his slaves. Slaves were to be identified as sons of Abraham and thereby members or relatives of the family of Abraham in the ancient text. This is groundbreaking. You did not do this in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you had tribes and clans. You dominated each other. The, the clan that was dominated became slaves of the other clan. That's how it worked in the ancient world everywhere else. Abraham, in the narrative portion of Torah, is given this groundbreaking principle from God. Include into fellowship of the community the people who have been born in your home and those purchased into your home, Abraham. And right there, 
you see the heart of God that even through slavery, people come into membership of the family and the community of faith and are adopted as more than slaves. They are adopted as sons. This is the predicate for the new covenant, whereby Gentiles come into a both sonship and slavery to God. We are slaves to righteousness, Romans talks about, but we are sons of God. This is why James, Paul, Peter, all refer to themselves as doulos, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the Lord's brother, does not refer to himself as the Lord's brother in his epistle. He refers to himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And yet he is also a son of God. So you have in the narrative of the Old Testament already the elevation of slave status into sonship. Let's go on. Fast forward to Exodus. Oh, by the way, let me give you another quick jab at anybody who questions God's heart about slavery and freedom from a skeptical point of view. Hey, the second book of the Bible is called Exodus, which is referring to the freedom of slaves. So it's like really high on God's agenda to get slaves out of slavery. Anyway, more on that later. Exodus chapter 12, in the instructions that God gives to Moses regarding the Passover, in verse 43, look at what God says. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this statute of the Passover... No foreigner, sh no foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. This is profound in the ancient world. You are going to first give them the sign of the covenant. They're going to be adopted as Jews, as sons of Israel now, even though they're slaves from foreign countries. And then once they are circumcised and adopted into that nation with the sign of the covenant, now they're welcome to the table of Passover. And by the way, Passover was a celebration of their liberation as slaves from Egypt into the freedom that God provided for them. So you have right there in Holy Scripture through narrative portions. Now, we're not even talking about the laws yet. We're talking about the narrative portions. God's heart for the slave and God's heart is simple. Set them free. Make them part of your community. This is the heart of God for those who are disadvantaged in society. Speaking of disadvantage, let's talk about slavery in the ancient world. It's very simple to understand something about slavery in the ancient world. Right now, as moderns and removing our implicit bias in our cultural snobbery, as modern Americans or Westerners, we have governments with social safety nets, such as welfare, food stamps, WIC programs, such as Social Security, such as unemployment benefits, severance packages. You lose your job in the modern world and there's a good chance that you do not go belly up. You can still find ways to maintain your lifestyle. Even if you lose work, work disaster happens to your life. There's insurances. We have modern inventions, okay, that are really predicated upon God's heart for the, the, the underprivileged and the weak and the vulnerable. We have these modern inventions, which we should thank God for, that protect vulnerable people from disaster, from the loss of a job, the loss of a harvest, the loss of life, right? This is what the ancient worlds did not have. And we have to, again, remove our implicit bias and our modern chronological state snobbery and say, okay, let's look at it from their point of view. And you have to understand that slavery was a social safety net in the ancient world. Leviticus 25 basically stipulates that. If your brother, verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired hired worker and as a sojourner, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I bought out of, brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Notice 
slaves, the protections for slaves in the ancient world. You're not going to treat him as a slave. You're going to treat him as a hired worker. This is an opportunity for him to have a social safety net within the community of Israel so that he doesn't become vulnerable to the conditions of a bad harvest, a year where his crops were played with who knows what, and his family is lost. No, you have a chance, brothers and sisters of one another in the family of God, to protect each other. That was the heart of God behind speaking to slavery in the ancient world in the context of Israel. Now, this is something else that undermines the very foundation of slavery as modern Americans think of it, because most modern Americans, particularly young Americans, only know of the African slave trade that sailed across the Atlantic into the American colonies and into Britain. That's your only reference to slavery. And you're you're very detached from the lion's share of human history regarding slavery. But I will say this about the Torah regarding even that slave practice. If uh, Westerners in the British Empire and in the American colonies had read scripture properly, okay, li listen to what I'm saying now, the Atlantic slave trade would have never existed, period, full stop. Because the Bible has several texts both in the Torah and in the prophets and in the New Testament that prohibit the slave trade. Let me show you this from Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, that's slave trading. And anyone who found in possession of him shall be murdered, shall be put to death, not, not murdered, shall be put to death, shall be executed. Capital punishment was reserved for slave traders in Exodus 21, 16. Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers, of the people of Israel. And if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Or Amos, a later prophet in the back half of the monarchy in northern Israel. He says in verse one, chapter one, verse six, he says, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. That's slave trading. God says, I'm going to punish the people of Gaza for trading slaves. By the way, the Gazans were Gentiles. So you have replete texts in the Old Testament where God is saying slave trading is off limits. If the Atlantic slave trade, which I understand was birthed in the Western world, a world that was the result of Christendom. Yes, full, <laughs> no excuses made here. It was an abominable practice by very Christianized empires and worlds that enacted a slave trade that the Bible clearly prohibited. Okay. Uh, the New Testament prohibits the slave trade. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.8 says, We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. Other translations say slave traders liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What is Paul saying there? He's saying the law, the law is in place to counter the following practices, unholy practices, profane practices, abusing your parents, murder, sexual morality, homosexuality, and slave trading. It's right there, lying and perjury. These are all there in black and white in the biblical text. And if the British Empire and the American colonies and all these you know, Christianized areas had just read scripture and followed it. 
the slave trade never even would have happened. Never would have even happened. And how would it have been stopped? By people reading the Torah and the biblical text. So there is no justification whatsoever, biblically, uh, for what, exp what the modern world, I say the modern world, the 16th to 19th centuries Western world practiced. And anyone who tells you differently is, is not reading scripture properly. We, we, we've got to at least have the honesty to understand that scripture spoke to this uh, and be honest about it. Some more biblical texts regarding slavery, and we're going to make some summations about the context of slavery in the Torah uh, at the end. So we're going to summarize what we're talking about, because it's actually quite amazing and astonishing how God protected slaves in Torah. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15 stipulates that runaway slaves were to be released. Now, this is going to shock some of you, but here and, and not for what the biblical text says, but for what other law texts from the near uh, ancient Near East stipulate. Deuteronomy 25, 15, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell. This is verse 16. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Can you see God's heart for the runaway slave here? And I totally understand, totally concede that biblical, not biblical. I don't want to say biblical. Christian pastors in the American South pre-Civil War preached from, from the Bible on, to, in, to encourage and to validate the enslavement of their fellow men. I totally concede that point. They were wrong. They were biblically illiterate. They were not godly in any way. Those who use the Bible to justify evil have always been around. They will always be around. And it is, the, it is the job of biblically minded, honest ex, uh, examiners of the Holy Scripture to call it out and to fight for what is right. Because we will get to a whole long list of Christians who fought for the end of the Atlantic slave trade, and they were pretty much all Christians. It's going to be amazing when you see the list. So this is what Deuteronomy says. And just bear with me for a second here. This is what Deuteronomy says about what happens when you find a runaway slave. Let's take a look at an ancient world corollary to this law from the Code of Hammurabi. Now, Hammurabi, the Code of Hammurabi is one of the oldest known legal codes in history. It dates back to the ancient Mesopotamian Empire, and it was created during the reign of King Hammurabi around 1750 to 760 BC, uh, before Christ. In the law codes of Hammurabi, runaway slaves were sought for a bounty, and if you aided them, you would be killed. What does the Bible say in Deuteronomy? If you return them to, your ma to their master, it's on you. And you're not going to do that. You're actually going to let them go wherever they want, where they desire to go, and you're not going to wrong them. Let's take a look at the Code of Hammurabi. Law 15 says, If a man harbors a fugitive in his house and does not bring him out to the public, that man shall be put to death. In other words, if you protect a runaway slave, you are going to be uh, executed. Law 16 from the Code of Hammurabi. If a slave of a freedman runs away from the city and someone returns to him, the owner of the slave shall give the finder two shekels of silver. There's a bounty for those who find a runaway slave. Law 117. If a slave of a man has fled into the city, one may arrest him there and bring him back to his owner. These are, this is the context, okay, in which Deuteronomy and Exodus is written. And it was not 
a favorable context for slaves. What you see repeatedly in Holy Scripture, particularly even in the difficult topics and the difficult laws, is God elevating the standard, God bringing people from where they are to where he is, and doing this very, very intentionally, step by step, because he he's working with the mess of sin in the human condition, and he's leading humans to a more equitable future. Let's go forward into the Torah regarding slavery, something that is not talked about at all, but in the Torah, slave, slaves were basically guaranteed their freedom in several texts. Deuteronomy 21, verse two, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you for six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. In other words, six years max, free in the seventh year, no charges. He does not have to pay. This is absolutely counter to relevant or corollary laws in the ancient world. If you had to, if you wanted to purchase your slavery from Rome, it cost you ex exorbitant fees and very few people could afford to ever do it. Exodus 21, 26, when a man strikes the eye of a slave, in other words, if you, if you abuse your slave and, a, and you hurt him, the slave is immediately free, no matter, no matter what. Deuteronomy 15, 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, he shall serve six years and the seventh free. Isaiah 58, talking about true fasting, verse 6, the later prophet, he says, is this not the fast that I choose, that you lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? In other words, if you want to really be spiritual, Israel, you're going to set slaves free. No questions asked. Back to the law from Leviticus, Leviticus 25.10. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. By the way, quick fact, that's the text that is written on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Le Leviticus 25.10. That's why it's called the Liberty Bell. So you proclaim liberty. This is the law. This is the 50th year of, uh, of Jubilee. And it says it's going to be a jubilee to you. And when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So here's what you have to understand about that. The, the, the year of Jubilee did not just set slaves free. It sent them back home to their inherited property under the, um, under the conquest of Joshua and the distribution of land uh, as is outlined in the book of Joshua. So not only does a slave go free in Israel every seventh year, it, they also go free every 50th year, just in case they sign up for slavery on the 49th year. They were, they were served for one year and they were given the option of freedom on the next year and they were returned to their property. Oh, by the way, quick fact, Jeremiah calls out Israel on the fact that they never practiced this law. And he said, this is going to be 70 years decreed for you of exile because you did not practice 70 years of freedom uh, in, during the monarchy, during the, the history of ancient Israel, which is really amazing when you think about it. The reason ultimately why Israel goes into exile, apart from the idolatry and following the pagan practices and the Baal worship and the ashram worship, is that they did not set their brothers and sisters free as God intended them to do so. Phenomenal to hear the heart of God in that regard. Then you have the Sabbath year which is a every seventh year experience for ancient Israel. Leviticus 25 verse three talks about this. For six years, you shall sow your field. And for six years, you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. Now look what he says here. Every seventh year, this is what Israel is supposed to do. 
You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what you shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The, the Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for your food. You, you have to understand what God is stipulating here for the people of Israel. Six years work the field. Seventh year, you don't work the field. You don't plant. You don't sow. You don't touch it. Guess what that, guess what that does for every person in your household who is typically out there sowing seed and harvesting? It gives them an entire year off. An entire year of no labor. Now, again, Israel didn't practice this law. This is what God had a problem with because they didn't trust that God would provide in that seventh year. This is, of course, a money issue. And that's a lot of times what slavery is built on. It's built on power, dominance, and money. In fact, that was the argument against abolishing slavery in Britain and in America in the 1800s, that the economy would collapse. And it didn't collapse. In fact, it exponentially grew the moment we eliminated slavery in the Western world. So you have what Israel struggled with, the 1800s Western world struggled with, the idea that we need to enslave, we need to mistreat each other, we need to overwork each other uh, in order to get ahead. It's an economic issue. So now you have, have we summarized this? A runaway slave gets set free. Uh, a slave in, in, uh, from the Hebrews, at least, can only serve six years at the most. You have protections that would provide for them a year off in the Sabbath year, every seventh year. And I thought to myself, the amount of time that you would actually serve as a slave at the most was six years, and it was rare if that. In fact, I would suggest to you that based on all these laws about when slaves were set free and when they were to work and how the, and when the fields were to rest, okay, at most, most often, Hebrew slaves worked for five years with a year-long break in between. And you say, well, how do you, how do you arrive at that? Um, let me put this on the screen. Slaves rest in freedom. So again, the term for slavery was six years with the seventh year immediate release. No questions asked. Every seventh year of Israel's calendar was a year of rest. So let's just say uh, one example here is worst case scenario. You start your slave contract with your brother in Israel at the end of the seventh year. So you unfortunately, you're going to have to work those six full years. But at the seventh year, you're going to be freed. Here is probably a more common example of what would have happened here. The second box, you have a six year period, but guess what happens right here in the middle of that six year period? There's a whole year break. So you're getting five years of slave service. And, and remember that this is a ancient form of welfare, social safety net, and you're not going to enslave him like you would a foreigner. You're going to treat him like a brother. You're going to treat him like a member of your own household. So you're going to work five years for a brother of, of Israel who honors you and loves you and protects you, or at least is commanded to do so. I know, I know I am assuming the best in human nature. And of course, the Bible reveals the worst of human nature. But nonetheless, God's prescription to ancient people is groundbreaking. And then consider this example here, which actually is wrongly uh, positioned. Uh, let me draw another box just so that we bear with me. Let's, let's consider that this is your six year period right here. OK, now what happens? You're, you start your your uh, indentured servitude uh, period of six years with only three years left until the year of Jubilee. And then you're basically working three years. And at the end of those three years, 
according to the law, you're getting your land back, you're getting your property back, you're getting your rights back, and you can go back to getting yourself settled. And man, I'll tell you, if Israel had practiced these laws, number one, God never would have handed them over to the ancient uh, Babylonians. Number two, other nations would have said, wow, I want to be a part of that community where people are treated with dignity. Number three, um, you, you have the foundation laid for social safety nets on which our social safety nets are now predicated on to make sure that the vulnerable and those who experience disaster are taken care of and are cared for and are protected. Now, and I'm going to make this point again, and please don't, <laughs> please don't misunderstand what I'm presenting here. This is not the be-all, end-all prescription for slavery in the Bible, not in any way, shape, or form. This is not the preference of God. And what we see in the Torah on a regular basis is that God is dealing with the mess that human sinfulness creates. He's working within the mess. He's putting his hands in the dirt. And he's pres uh, prescribing guardrails to keep us from destroying each other based on our greed, our ambition, and our desire to dominate one another. Now, this law, which I'm sure you have never heard, or at least the skeptics have never even read in the Bible, is phenomenal. Deuteronomy 15. Remember Deuteronomy 15, 12 talks about how six years he works for you, seventh year is free. What does it say in the very next text? It says this in verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor. That's where they would thresh the wheat and out of your wine press. As the Lord, your God has blessed you. You shall give to him. You shall remember. And the reason why you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. In other words, you're not just going to set the slave free. You're going to bless them. And the three elements there, you're going to bless them with agricultural animals. You're going to bless him with wheat so that he can eat. And then you're going to bless him with wine so he can have a party and enjoy life and rejoice in the, in the life that God has given him. This is profoundly different than any other law code in the ancient world. And anyone who says, oh, the Bible is pro-slavery. Oh, the Bible supports the man. They have not read the whole Bible. They are being academically disingenuous and intellectually dishonest in their examination of the scriptures, because you have to take the whole of the biblical text together, let scripture interpret scripture and arrive at a conclusion. And if the conclusion that you arrive at after reading what we've read leads you to believe that God is pro-slavery, uh, you're being intellectually dishonest. And I'm going to be honest and I'm going to call you out on it. One more thing that is a very strange text is was in the Exodus text. Uh, and it's also in the Deuteronomy text. Let me read it from Deuteronomy. And you probably saw it. And you were like, what's up with that? Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 15. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take it all, put it through his ear on the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord, your God will bless you in all that you do. So a couple things here. Why on earth? And you have to ask yourself, you're going to be intellectually honest about the biblical text regarding slavery. Why on earth would God prescribe this option of perpetual enslavement to a family if it were not in some maybe minor cases, minority cases, preferable 
to remain enslaved than to go out on one's own and try to earn a living in a very different ancient world context. Did I say that clearly? Because some of you are like, probably like, what? what did you just say? Okay, here's what I'm saying. Why would God prescribe the option for the slave, not the slaveholder, the slave to say, I don't want to go out there on my own. You've taken good care of me. I'm well off with you. I'm willing to stay with you. And let's do this. Put a, put a hole in my ear. I'm yours forever. If it were not preferable for some people, maybe a minority of the population, to have that mindset. Now, you say, I, I still can't believe that. Like, okay, how many people, how many people in our modern civilized world stay in jobs simply because of the benefits? Stay in jobs because they got their 401k or they've got their pension coming. How many people work simply for the pension that's coming in 20 or 30 or 40 years? Seriously. Is that not willful submission of one's rights and freedoms to another's desires and plans and agenda for the sake of financial well-being? Is it any different at all, except for the fact that it is an ancient world context and this is a uh, modern world context? And of course, there's even far more uh, you know, laws that preserve human dignity in our modern world than in the ancient world. But the point is, is this, that you, can't, you have to be blind not to see that the biblical text, the Torah, is the, found on, the foundation on which these labor laws are grounded. And we do not reference the Code of Hammurabi to write modern laws in our world anymore. We do not. But the biblical text is right there, part and parcel with our modern American laws, our modern mindset regarding uh, slavery and freedom. So let's summarize. Let's summarize what the biblical text in the Torah has stipulated regarding slaves, because this is going to, when we put it all together, show you, wow, slavery in the Bible, much different than I originally thought. And again, not perfect, but let's talk about, about the law so far. Number one, naturalization was assumed. In other words, they were to be adopted, circumcised, brought into the family. Part of the Abrahamic covenant. Number two, rights protected. You can't beat them without punishment. You can't mistreat them without setting them free. Number three, refuge expected. If you find or run, experience or run into a runaway slave, you must provide refuge and not return them, nor price them out to be returned to their master. Number four, freedom was guaranteed. It didn't matter if it came in six years or in the year of Jubilee or at some, uh, some other point, if you became a slave in ancient Israel, God prescribed that there was going to be a day of freedom no matter what. Uh, number five, payment provided upon release. So you didn't just go out of a, of a slave situation. You went out with blessing, wine, bread, and flocks. In fact, God so protected slaves in the, ancient con in the ancient world, in the Torah, that one rabbi famously noted, that it was almost preferable to be a slave than a slaveholder because all of this fell on the slaveholder. The slaveholder, the powerful person in the relationship, had to naturalize, had to protect, had to provide refuge, had to guarantee freedom, and had to pay their slaves. And again, I want to make sure one more statement gets reiterated in this, in this lesson. None of this suggests that slavery is a morally good thing. Not a single stitch of it suggests that. And again, this is not an exhaustive study on the issue, but I hope I've done a good work on peeling back some of the assumptions about what the Bible says concerning slavery for the skeptics out there, for those who might have clicked on this video only because it was slavery in the Bible and you did a, a Google search on that issue and here you are and you're doing a paper for some university project and welcome to the channel, subscribe, hit the button, yeah, like the video, I hope, thanks. 
and, and there's so much more to talk about that we're not going to have time to get to on one episode. And like I said, there's going to be a series within the series. And we're going to get to this text on uh, Exodus 27, 21 verse 7, where it talks about selling your daughter as a slave. And then we're going to talk about Leviticus 25, where she talks about foreign slaves. We're going to get there, but we don't have time for it in this one episode. We will, we will cover it in, uh, in the future. Now for more evidence that the Bible under, undermines the institution of Western slavery as we understood it. The end of slavery as moderns understood it was instigated by Christians. And all you have to do is a quick research on William Wilberforce and how he worked endlessly and tirelessly to bring an end to the slave trade in the British Empire. Uh, William Wilberforce was a child of privilege. He was from a rich family. He got into the parliament. He literally wasted his life away in parliament for many, many years. And eventually he had an encounter with the slave trade that broke him. Uh, came to Christ, was mentored by a guy named John Newton, who wrote the, the, the uh, famous hymn Amazing Grace, who was himself a former slave trade ship captain. And uh, through years of work and political maneuvers, some of them not out in the open, William Wilberforce got the Aboli abolition of the Slave Trade Act passed in 1807 in the British Parliament, changed the world. By the way, what did that do? It changed the British Empire's view of the slave trade, the Atlantic Ocean slave trade, and the ships that were bringing Africans to the American colonies. And what happened was that between 1808, on the heels of the abolition of the Slave Trade Act being passed, and 1860, a, the, a, a fleet of 25 British ships in the British Navy called the West African Squadron captured, and historians will not tell you this, captured 1,600 slave ships and freed 150,000 Africans between the years 1808 and 1860. Again, not ideal. Wish we could have, wish it never happened. Wish it could have removed all slavery from the world, period, full stop. Absolutely. But... It was the work of William Wilberforce, a devout Christian, who got that process started. And in America, it was biblically-minded Christian leaders who fought for the end of slavery in this country. Dozens, if not hundreds of pastors. I'll give you a couple of names. Uh, Philip Schaff, who wrote that book there on the screen, Slavery in the Bible, it's a little tract, talked about the history of slaves, slavery in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman world, and how it was different, and how God stipulated so much, what I what walked you through today, uh, with regards to slavery in the Bible. And he fought from uh, his pulpit in Maryland for the end of the slave trade. Th Theodore Dwight Weld. Uh, he was a prominent American abolitionist and an advocate of nonviolent resistance. He was deeply influenced by his Christian faith and became a minister. He played a crucial role in organizing the uh, African Anti-Slavery Society and was involved in spreading anti-slavery literature and, pre and preaching against slavery. William Lloyd Garrison was not a pastor, but he was an influential ab abolitionist. He was the founder of the American Anti-Slavery Society and uh, published the famous anti-slavery newspaper, The Liberator, but he was also grounded in Christian faith, and he argued vehemently for the immediate and unconditional abolition of slavery. John Rankin was a Presbyterian minister who became known for his anti-slavery activism. He was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. He helped slaves escape, finding their freedom to the North. 
He circulated an anti-slavery pamphlet titled Letters on American Slavery. Then you have Harriet Beecher Stowe, probably the most famous abolitionist who wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was the catalyst for the North to fight for the freedom of slaves in the South. And then you have Elijah Parrish Lovejoy. He was a Presbyterian minister and a journalist who uh, used the newspaper The Alton Observer to denounce slavery. He was murdered by a pro-slavery mob in 1837. You have Henry Highland Garnet. He was escaped slave in Maryland, and then he became a Presbyterian minister. He was known for his address to the slaves in 1843, where he called for the enslaved individuals to rise up and take their freedom. Garnet's Christian faith was central to his abolitionist activism. More names that we could just go on and on. uh, Jarena Lee, Uh, she was a women's minister in the African Methodist Episcopal Movement, and she advocated for the freedom of the enslaved individuals. Nat Turner, who instigated a riot uh, in Southampton County, Virginia, for the freedom of slavery, the freedom of, of the slaves in that area. Samuel Ringgold Ward was a congregational minister and a newspaper editor. He was an outspoken abolitionist who used his pulpit and his paper, the alien alienated American to advocate for the end of slavery and the civil rights of African-Americans. Ward was also involved in efforts to support fugitive slaves through the Underground Railroad. Sojourner Truth, a very famous and prominent African-American and charismatic Christian. She delivered her Ain't I a Woman speech in 1851, advocating for the rights of both African-Americans and women. This speech literally set the world on fire for the freedom of the slaves. Harriet Tubman, not a traditional minister, but also a devout Christian known as the Moses of her people, led enslaved individuals to freedom through the Underground Railroad. Alexander Cromel was an Episcopal priest and missionary. He was a strong advocate for the education and upliftment of African-Americans, and he played a key role in the African Civilization Society, which aimed to promote the development of the African and African-American self-reliance. The point that I'm trying to make, and I hope you're getting it here, is that it was Christian leaders who believed in the Bible, both black and white, in this country and in Britain, that fought for and lost their lives for, in some cases, to end slavery. And anyone who will be historically honest will concede as much. Could I summarize by saying it is very difficult to argue that the Bible supports slavery when those who believed and preached the Bible fought to end it. It's Christmas time, and many of you are going to go to church and you're going to sing a very famous song. It was written in 1843 by a French priest, and it stipulates these lines. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Change shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Notice the words, shall cease. The idea that God did not end slavery in the Bible, that's a troublesome one. Why didn't God just stipulate to Moses, hey, don't do this. Future generations are going to judge you and going to judge me for continuing uh, this, this human institution of slavery. And it's a fair question. But based on what we've studied tonight, could I offer a couple of reasons, a couple of rationales for why he didn't eliminate slavery altogether? Number one, I think there's the practical argument. God is working within the environment and he's working on hearts where they are and not where they should be. In other words, step-by-step reforming of the human experience 
and the human context to bring about a more just and equitable society. And he can't expect humans locked in sin to leapfrog these cultural standards. God's getting his hands in the mud and fixing us and cleaning us. Number two, the law is intended to limit the powerful and protect the vulnerable. And we've talked about that extensively on this episode of The Deep Dive. But number three, and this one might be perhaps the most, I don't know, interesting one. Perhaps God is seeking to make us more like himself, the one who sets the slave free. In other words, the strict guardrails that God establishes for ancient Israel regarding how they treated their slaves were pictures of how God treats us. And time and time again, God stipulates, you were slaves in Egypt and I delivered you. You're slaves in Egypt and I blessed you. You were slaves and you're going to start acting like me. In other words, perhaps God worked within the institution of slavery by limiting it, guardrailing it, and in some ways redeeming the process by which it was enacted in the Torah to teach his people step by step to become more like him. He is the one who sets the captives free. There's a New Testament person who caught this. His name is Paul. Paul the Apostle. There's a book called Philemon. It's actually written about a runaway slave. Now, according to the Torah, Paul was required not to send the runaway slave back. In fact, he was blessed if he didn't. But he does send this runaway slave back in Philemon. Uh, and the name of the slave is Onesimus. And we have a book in the Bible written to the former slave owner of Onesimus. Uh, what Paul says in Philemon is that he became a partner in ministry. It's a, there's a good chance that he ran away, not a Christian, and Philemon was a Christian, and then he came to Paul and became a Christian and served in Paul's ministry with him. And here's what Paul says in verse 15 of this one chapter book. He says, for this is perhaps why he was parted for you from, for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than that, a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. What is Paul doing? He's saying, here's what the gospel does. It undermines every institution of civil society by calling us to acknowledge the human dignity and worth in every individual, to fight for their freedom, to fight for their empowerment. And then ultimately what Paul does here, he takes another step forward. He says, and to pay what other people owe. I'm going to pay his account. I'm going to bring him back to you a brother a brother in the Lord, a brother in the flesh. And I'm going to cover the cost. In other words, I am going to imbibe the gospel in my lifestyle. I'm going to do for Onesimus what Jesus did for me. He paid my ransom. He paid my debt. He made me through his payment, a brother and a partner. And if we embrace that for ourselves, we must pass it on to others. And that, my friends, is just the start of what the Bible says about slavery. Thanks for being here, guys, tonight. Uh, support the Bible study if you'd like to. Cash app, Tim Hatch Live, or timhatchlive.com slash support. But I would rather you become one of our members, and you can see there the membership plans, and there's also a legacy level, $60 a month. It's available at the Patreon, Tim Hatch, what is it? Patreon.com slash Tim Hatch Live. When you do so, go to Project Rescue. We 20% uh, of our income goes out, 10% to Project Rescue, rescuing slaves, and the American Bible Society, getting the Bible into the hands of many people. You can also help us out by liking and subscribing and sharing this content on your social media page. Share it with a skeptic. I invite them to check out this content. I'm glad you were here, and I hope this was a blessing to you, and I will see you next time on the Deep Dive Bible Study. Take care. Mm -hmm.